Welcome everyone to uh, today's uh, episode. I was about to say special episode, but I feel like every episode is special, at least to me. Um, but today is a new one in a way, because officially, Paul Townley, you're the first guest on the Treatment Room Secret podcast to return for the second time. So congratulations. Good to have you here again. Whoever doesn't know Paul Townley, um, number one, they can read about him online on our website, but also um, you can jump 11 episodes back to episode number one, uh, where you'll be able to uh, listen to the first hour we, we recorded with uh, Paul Townley. Um, it was actually the kickoff episode for Treatment Room Secrets. And I think I mentioned last episode, I don't know if you listened, Paul, to my last episode, episode number 11, I wasn't interviewing anyone, it was just me talking and almost um, in a way summarizing the first 10 episodes that we recorded. Um, and I believe that I mentioned that I think the episode that I laughed at the most was the one with you. Uh, so again, congratulations within the first two minutes of the episode, but good to have you here. Um, very excited. I know we we had a lot we wanted to talk about last time, um, and I believe we probably spent a good chunk of it talking about football and about Crystal Palace. Um, so because of that, maybe let's start again with football and then jump to the more interesting things. Um, but you... Football, Chelsea... What's going on? Do we have to? <laughs> um, at, well, least you're, of, at least you're not a Liverpool fan. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm not too sure. Why, laughing at it, was it laughing at what I was saying or because it was so awful? I hope it was <laughs> what I was saying. I think that um, you were able to uh, hit spots in me that I um, absolutely resonate mm. uh, with. That's probably because we both come from a football background and... Um, Let's be honest, you'll probably won a few more than Chelsea's doing at the moment. So. <laughs> um, I don't want to talk about Chelsea, it makes me cry. Um, so many injuries though, too. It's unbelievable. We've got we've got a team that's worth more than the uh, GDP of Ghana at the moment and we still can't do anything and the injuries are gradually coming back. Um, they're talking of bringing back the old, um, the old Chelsea doctor that had a, a fallout with uh, Jose Mourinho. Is it and the they, female doctor, yeah, right? Yeah, there was something to do with what he said to her when she ran on the pitch or whatever. I, I can't remember thinking of bringing her back. Um, actually, at the time, a good friend of mine was the physio. She was actually a doctor. She was a club doctor. At Chelsea? At Chelsea, yeah. And um, uh, the actual physio, physio was a guy called John Fern, who was a friend of mine that I'd worked with at, uh, in a private clinic. Uh, and... Uh, after all of the kerfuffle that was caused by what was going on with um, uh, Jose Marino and uh, I think her name's Ava or something like that, uh, he went elsewhere as well. So I don't really know who the physios are there now. They have had some pretty awful injury problems with what with Reese James and um, and Mason Mount. But the main thing is it's just a real big mix-up. They can't get the team to get together. That That's my... Kante is injured opinion. too, isn't he? He's always injured, isn't he? Yeah, it seems most like most of the it. Se season he has been. Yeah. But before he's just signed a contract as well. I don't know what they're thinking he's going to do. Yeah, uh, and he. I mean, uh, I think there's a general consensus out there amongst uh, football players, fans, and everyone that he was one of the most important players on the team that won a couple of championships. Yeah, he was incredible, and he's still. He's still I think the, the the sad thing is, I mean. Obviously, I'm talking as a fan of Chelsea. I worked at Crystal Palace, so I'm always when I have those matches, I'm in a total dilemma. I always just want it to be a draw, but the last match, I actually wanted Chelsea to win because we're so doing we so badly, at, doing so badly at the moment. But our good older players, like the um, the captain, whose name I can never say, uh, that one, yeah, <laughs> and um, and Conte, and a few of the others that have been injured or. They're just not able to manage the, the match time now. It's making a real big difference while the young ones are coming through. And they've bought so many... I mean, it's absolutely pure class what they've got on the the, the the playing ground at the moment whenever you watch a match, but they've not managed to gel yet because they're, they're not there. And I used to see that a lot. Um, it's funny. I, I remember it very well when I was at Crystal Palace. We had... Terry Venables was the manager at one at the time. And Steve Coppel was the been basically pushed to the side to be the director of football, and he had been the manager prior to that. And while we, it was something I saw a lot in the treatment room was the, um, 
there was a changeover. Terry Venables wasn't really managing to do very much with the team he had and he spent a lot of money, uh, the chairman at the time, and spent in, and invested a lot of money, bought in a lot of new players. It just wasn't working. Uh, I was working with the reserve team a lot. I, my position then, I was like the head of the academy, which I said in the first podcast. Yep. But my second hat, so to speak, was the second professional physio and I used to do a lot of work with the reserve team now it's like the the U23s I think they go by they might be I mean it was yeah. then it was just the, the reserve teams and, yep. and basically that was the team that was made up of the players that weren't in favour at the time or were injured or coming back from injuries or whatever they wouldn't be playing if they were injured coming back from injuries on the way back in and that lot were probably more should I say allied or linked to Steve Coppel at the time, who wasn't was no longer a manager. When Terry Venables got kicked out, basically it, it was amazing because I'd never seen anything like that. I was I was fairly new to football at that point, but literally the faces of the players in the treatment room changed because the lot that were there under Terry Venables suddenly knew they were not going to be picked for the matches and the ones that were all on the reserve team suddenly knew they were going to be picked for the matches or at least have a chance or like have a, a very good chance because Steve Coppel was now the manager so uh, and and you could just see like there was like what had been one all these happy faces on the left side suddenly became very dark and gloomy and on the right side suddenly became very very happy and the team literally changed overnight um, a lot of people were kicked out or whatever at that point as well um, that was also about the time that we uh, Crystal Palace went into administration for about the 14th time I can't, can't remember when but how many but um, there were some changes and it was weird to watch it and I'm looking at Chelsea now and I'm thinking What must be going on? It must be going through the minds of some of those players, especially some of the, the young, good players like Mason Mount, who, he's brilliant. I think he's an excellent player, but how is he? How must he be feeling? Because he's getting a lot of um, sort of bad press from the fans and he's not been able to really fit in here and there. And it, So it's quite interesting to watch it, knowing the dynamic that's going on behind it to some extent. So on the Mason Mount thing, and I think it's very analog analogous to many other players, uh, for example, even Marcus Rashford, although they're on opposite side of the, sides of the spectrum at the moment, but the players have to perform consistently uh, because if not, they they get heat from the fans, they get heat from the media, and it must disturb them psychologically, mentally, oh, definitely. and just push them off the track. If you, if you think of somebody like Mason Mount, now, he's a young player. He came through the academy. Um, Chelsea through and through. He's, been, you know, he's got it stamped on his heart somewhere. He's been played out of position quite a lot of times, and then he's got injuries. I don't think people really understand just quite how often being played out of position can affect your having an injury. I, mean, you, I can't remember what position you played in. You, I was a centre-back. I was yeah. going to say, you've got to have been a back at your, your height and build. So, yeah. so somebody, somebody starts making you play out on the wing and you're not used to running at that speed or doing things like that. You're going to develop an injury in a certain way. Yeah, suddenly I'll, I'll, I'll just be sprinting for longer distances and at a higher rate. And you're doing it match after match when you're not used to it and haven't really built up to it. You're likely to do a hamstring or pull a calf muscle. That's something that people don't think about even in, um, I know we're talking about elite Premier League players, but even if someone is not used to going to the park... Well, that happens, all, that's, that happens daily. That's my bread and butter, let's be honest. But people don't really... Do people think about that, you think? Before never. they go out and play? No, never. Never. They just think it's... I've got one now. He's a teacher. He's actually a teacher of cinema. And he, uh, he said, I hadn't played for a while. And I said, well, what's a while? A couple of years. And he said, no, I went out and started playing with my friends in the park. The guy's in his 50s. Of course he's going to pull a calf muscle. And he did. <laughs> And and the thing is, this is what happened with with the likes of Mason Mount when they they get injured and then they're out and then they're trying to get back in and getting injured again, as we spent, we said last time that happens a lot. How many times you were pushed back into playing because you were needed, and then he's getting played out of position again, and he's never been able to really find himself. And then they come in and drop somebody else in, somebody else in, 
the big managers and the owners are all saying, right, I want to buy this, I'm going to buy that, I'm going to buy... We're talking as if we're talking about sweets, but it's not, or candies if you're American. It's not these are human beings. They're buying them, they're putting them in. The manager... And tens uh, of millions of dollars. Yeah, or hundreds of millions even. Um, the manager, Harry Potter, or whatever his name is, Graham Potter, I'm being a bit insulting there. Um He's certainly not done anything magical with Chelsea recently. He's got to try and gel this, which is almost impossible because he's just getting thrown in different bits. The older players are still trying to keep some of their spots. The younger players, like Mason Mount, like Reese James, who's coming back from injury, um, they're struggling and um, are not giving them the chance to really excel as we know that they can excel. And so what happens is they end up selling them. And I'm so scared they're going to do that. I'm terrified they're going to sell uh, people like Mason Mount just to make some of the money back for people that won't necessarily fit in. And I saw it even at a, a, a bit of a lower level like Crystal Palace. I saw it quite a lot. Um, and I was only there for a few years. And in a few years I was working there, a few seasons that I was working there, I, I saw it. Um, and it's quite surprising to see it. And then when you take it down to the, the guy playing in the park or the guy playing for his local sort of five-a-side team that haven't played, and the mentality of that, I mean, no one likes to be left on the bench. And then they go in and try and do it and play and do what they can and give their all, which hasn't been used for quite a while, so to speak, and then end up getting injuries. Yeah, and you get a bit warmed up, rattled up, and you feel invincible. Exactly. And then what happens is, is okay, I've, I haven't got the strength, I haven't got the power, I haven't got the fitness to to manage and to play like I could. Yeah. What do you do? So you take somebody's legs out from under them because it's easier to hack them down than it is to... to cheat. Yeah, and than it is to actually try and play as well as you used to be able to play. So now you've got another injury sitting there. Um, okay, it bodes well for people like me, I suppose, but I don't always get to see them. I might go to another physio. But it's. Uh... Do you find yourself as as a physio and as someone who has worked in the back scenes of football, of soccer? Do you find and you are a fan today? Do you find yourself though looking at football through a different lens? Oh, totally, totally. I can't watch a proper football match. So, if, so if you sit next to a normal fan, then you you think that you guys are watching two different things almost. It's interesting. <laughs> If I'm watching it on the TV, I've got two sons, and uh, one's a 20-year-old and another's a 17-year-old. The 17-year-old is finishing school. Um, his language is absolutely atrocious, I have to say, when he's watching a football match. He's learned every bad English word as possible from me. The older one's a little bit more laid back. And we're watching a match, and the thing is, when you're watching a TV, the camera is where the ball is. It's not on the player that just went down or the player that's possibly going to go down. And that's what I'm watching. And so you can watch the the the, uh, the match on the TV and I'll see the foul and I'll say, that's going to be a problem, that's going to be a problem for such and such thing. But I've only seen it in the, the sort of the framework of the, the TV. Now, if I'm at a live match, I'm not even watching the ball. I'm always looking behind it or in front of it or looking for the, brute is going to hack the team or the player if i'm if i go to a match it's usually a team i support but i want to see win so i'm looking at what's going to be happening with the good players or particular position or the known player for 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 fouling so you're looking at that um from a completely different perspective and often you're not actually seeing what's going on at the time of the match and suddenly you hear ooh like that and i'm already looking at somebody that's been cut down or been fouled further down to see if he's getting up what leg he's favoring what leg he isn't favoring how he's how he's moving moving or not moving and like i said when the match is flowing nicely you're looking at say for example back in the day and i'm just showing my age now um when i was working in football there was a west ham player called julian dix i don't know if you remember him i don't you don't <laughs> i'll tell you we had Sorry. one we had one in crystal palace called kevin muscat and um I remember when one of the players said, oh, he'd left the team already, he was at another team, and they said, oh, did you see what Muscat did, blah, 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 and some other player turned and said, what, was he destroying somebody's knee or something? Because he was known for, like, really, f for fouling, and Julian Dix was quite a hard player as well. Roy Keane, obviously, you've heard of now, yep. he's a very hard player. You'd be looking at players like that to see what they're going to be doing. As you well know, not everything happens 
on the ball. And on frame, yeah. So yeah. I think that's something that definitely people or the average fan doesn't really think about. Never think Another thing about football and soccer is soccer football it looks the game looks easy when viewed through the TV yeah. or from above in the stadium. Yeah. If you watch a game at the same height as the coach and players, thing, yeah. it it seems a hundred times faster. It almost seems impossible to do anything on the ball. But the criticizers sit so high up and the game, it does look easy. I don't blame them because it really does look easy. It seems like you can see everything. But once you're like on the same height level as all the players on the field, how the hell are you supposed to see? Well, you've yeah, two things. I'm going to ask you something about when you were a center back in corners in a second. So if I forget that, remember it. When they have their kit, and they choose their kit. It goes down to that simple, simple thing. The kit man lays all the kit out and everything. Yeah. If they don't get the socks right, mm. they have to change the kit. Mm. And have you ever thought of why? Well, you probably know why. Because when you're playing football and the ball's moving and it's moving at speed. I've worked in football, i worked in rugby, and i said before in the, the other podcast, i worked with international athletes. But in football, is in my, and I mean football, soccer, Rugby and American football are both pretty aggressive and violent games, but football for injuries and nasty injuries, or soccer, is far, far worse simply because of the speed and the size of these guys. These are not small little people. These are very big guys. People just don't realise, like you said, you're not on the ground with them. If you looked at some of the players, I remember Tony Adams, the old Arsenal defender, opening the door for me. He held the top of the door open for me and I walked under his arm. And um, that's how big they are. His quads were like the size of my chest. Something like that coming into you at speed is going to hurt. Now, I was going back to, in the, when you're playing football, somebody even having the socks a different colour, what are you doing when you're playing? You're not looking the guy in the eye. You're looking at his legs and his feet to see what he's doing. And you're moving at a fair pace. You're probably running 20 miles an hour if you're really sprinting. And somebody's coming up beside you. You want to know what colour socks they're wearing because they can be on your team or not, and you can't have two teams wearing the same colour socks, because it's it's confusing. So that, that's one thing. Another thing people don't realise is just how much, and you must notice, you would have gone corners. up for corners. You would have gone up for corners. How much niggle, as we call it, goes in for corners, when you've got the people elbowing you in the ribs and giving you a little jab or scrape, scraping their studs down the back of your, your calf muscle just to put you off, or the little thumps here and there that you don't get. There's loads of them. People don't sit, but they hurt. You get thumped in the ribs, it hurts. My my first ever game as a as a officially an adult player, adult player leaving the youth ranks, I came in as a substitute, um, really to waste time. Uh, it was about the 92nd or 93rd minute, and it was to defend a corner. So I was subbed in, and I ran to the to the 18-yard box, 16-meter box to defend. And as soon as I got there and found my man, which was a big guy, bigger than me, um, and I'm 6'2", so he's, he was, he's a big boy, and as soon I looked him in the eyes and he grabbed my um down there, my my nutsack. Um and yeah, I was I, I froze for a second and I was shocked. Yeah. Um and if that happened to me, obviously there's famous pictures of players from like you know, Gas Gascoigne and Vinnie Jones picture. Exactly, where he's doing so that's it. exactly what happened mm. to me. And I just it caught me by surprise. I wasn't expecting it because I've experienced little elbows, little nudges, little someone spitting on you, small yeah. things that are just annoying but when someone grabs you down there it's um and it's thing, unexpected and the, very uncomfortable the funny I'm, 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 <laughs> and you don't have time to react because he grabs you and then the, the ball's, ball's playing yeah. and he's still holding you when you're trying to jump up you're not gonna try and jump up yeah <laughs> now it's making you're making me laugh thinking about it because the amount of times i've run on to um how can we say um injuries of the nether regions and that was, well, in my case, always seemed to happen on the other side of the pitch. I'm not the fastest thing on two legs. But you would run across there, and the guy would be rolling around. And you know when you get there as a fizzer, there's nothing you can do. I mean, I can't put cold water on it, because he's already, he's not going to say thank you, my poor ice-cold water all over the his shorts and everything. He's in pain everywhere. Anyway, everybody, everybody, including the ref, are all laughing. So that's all you hear, is people laughing, including your own including your own team 
from the benches to just because they all know what it's like. They know what's happened. Yeah. They know what's going to go on. They, it, it, and you like, you run up and you sort of say, you're okay. And he goes, of course I'm not. <laughs> and he said, like, just you know, need what time. can I do? Yeah. Time. I just sort of spray something and try and look useful. Like, and, uh, and then they'll get up and eventually and start moving around. So what, what would you uh, tell people that don't know about the injury theatrics in football? Um, this is obviously this. I don't think it came from the English football culture, more from uh, European, South yeah. American, European, yeah, Spanish, Italians, right? Yeah. Um, but did you? Is that something you experienced? A just lot. yeah, a lot over I, theatrics. I'll give you a good story of this. I, it was actually with the youth team, and uh, I got one of my my uh, tours abroad. I didn't get many with the with the, the first team. I travelled obviously in the Premier League or the other when we went down league around the country because I was like the second physio. So I'd get the, quite a few matches and always the home games. But I got quite a few tours abroad with the, the kids coming through. And we had tours in Italy and in France and things like that. And Crystal Palace. Now, Crystal Palace is not one of these, or wasn't, still isn't really. One have, of you these seen, have you seen Ted Lasso? I've I've heard of it. No, I have never seen um, it. So it's I, th- I believe it's AFC Richmond. Yeah. But the stadium, the colours. Um, I'm sorry if I'm wrong here, but the the colours are like seems like it's based on oh, Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace. So I think, I think you'd enjoy it. From what I've heard of it, he sounds like the youth team manager. I'm not going to say his name that we had, who was one shouting and screaming. And I've never actually seen it, but a friend of mine's told me about it. And he said, "Why haven't you watched it? You must watch it." And he's doing this, and, and I'm listening to it, and I'm thinking that happened in our changing room. That was our, one of our youth team coaches that used to act just like that. So it could well be uh, based on him. But I remember when we went and um, we had this match. I think it was in Italy. And uh, lovely, we went to La Guardia and they had all the, the little stadiums around there that we were playing in. And we'd be playing the youth team for Juventus, the youth team for um, for Bayern Munich, the youth team, youth team for Ajax and things like that. It was great. Um, we, had, we had a good time while we were there as well with the other coaches and the physios. Um, but it, I just remember that Crystal Palace were one of these teams that they were – because you're talking about that Ted Lasso, be a man, don't be, you know, don't let him knock you off the ball, you knock him off the ball, be tough. So the kids were kind of taught to be like that. And suddenly they came up against some of the Italian teams like Juventus and um, who were diving a lot or throwing themselves around on the floor or Barcelona, again, throwing themselves around on the floor. And the kids would come up and they would go, I can't get to the ball because they keep, every time I go anywhere near them, they throw themselves on the floor and we've not even touched it. And the uh, coach turned around, the coach at the time, he turned around and said, you're just going to have to get used to it. He said, that's how they play. And um, get used to it. And it's going to happen if you get through into the, the senior teams. You just have to get used to it. You find your way of dealing with it. And you do. You'll see some of the ones that will just come... What I've seen more often is they give them a little dig with their heel as they go past it. You want to play around on the floor, make sure you, you feel it for the next few minutes. But uh, Yeah, maybe they have to catch them off frame because also the, only, the referees can see so much as well. And the ball's already moving by yeah. that point. So. Um, but So they almost like found a solution for the uh, tough English player, just fall over every time. But like for Americans, for example, or even I think rugby fans or people in the rugby world, they must hate when, you know, a a football player like a Neymar uh, gets touched and rolls over. It's more than diving because even if it, when it is a foul, they just overplay it. it The rolling over, the screaming, it almost looks like they just got shot. But then two seconds later, they're on their feet and everything's fine. I go... um... Uh, my wife uh, used to work for United Airlines, so I'm blessed with the uh, the benefit of having standby tickets. I'm also blessed with two kids who absolutely love to travel whenever they can, and knowing that they're not easily going to get to see Chelsea, Chelsea in Britain, every summer Chelsea seems to play in the United States in these different trophies. The last one was the Florida Cup. It's actually really disappointing because it it kind of sets the the, the stage honestly for the, the season. Um, this year we were playing Arsenal in Orlando, 
and we went over to see the match. The North London Derby in Florida. Well, yeah, Northwest London in Florida, in a Florida State Cup, and Arsenal beat us 4-0. And where are Arsenal now? Top of the league, and where are Chelsea now? Hovering around mid-table. It kind of set the, the scene for it almost. But when they started diving around, a lot of the fans obviously were, were American. So it was actually Joy sitting there talking to her and everything. I could hear our accents and uh, I'd say, oh, you're English. I said, yeah, we've come over to watch the, the match and everything. And they were talking, why is he doing that? Why is he? They couldn't stand it. It used to really annoy them because American football, they're not really like that either. They're American soccer that I've seen. The players that were at Chelsea, they're not sort of making a meal of, uh, out of nothing. Everyone will dive. We all do, well, we all do, I don't because I've never played it, but um, they're all going to dive. We're going to try and get a bit here and there. They're all going to have a little dig here and there. But there are, like you say, certain teams that are a lot more, um, or certain cultures that are a lot more willing to to stand up and, and take it and just move on. The old Norman Hunter with the bandage around his head with loads of blood coming out of it and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm going to carry on playing. It, <laughs> yeah, it used to be noble yeah. in the sport. It was a story, but there were, I mean, this is before my time even. I remember them. I was a kid. Norman Hunter from Leeds and Jimmy Greaves, I think it was at Spurs or whatever. And they're standing in a tunnel and Jimmy Greaves is telling his story. And uh, Jimmy Greaves, they're standing in the tunnel ready to come out. And suddenly he feels this searing pain down the back of his leg. And Norman Hunter was dragging his studs down the back of his calf muscle and his leg. And Jimmy Greaves turned around and said, how are you doing? Probably used a few other words about from that. And um, Norman Hunter went, get used to that. You've got another 90 minutes of it coming. <laughs> what a way. What a way to start the game, huh? And that was it. He said, for the rest of the match, he was cutting chunks out of me with his, uh, his tackles. So now fast forward a few decades. Um, you have the media, you have the, the managers and the, the top physios and club doctors all arguing that they should reduce the number of games or matches that players play. Uh, because of the number of injuries and obviously medicine is improving but also but at the same time number of injuries they say keeps growing as well what do you think about reducing the number of games well firstly i think they're playing a lot more games than they ever did yeah because there's more competitions more competitions and, and the tours in america etc exactly let's take this year we had if you're a Chelsea player, I'm sorry for the audience for us banging on about Chelsea all the time, but it's a good example. Yeah, that's right. Everyone fairly, likes the Premier League. Because yeah, they they're a fairly high-level team and they've got players from all over the world. So this year, they would have finished the Premier League as they did. We weren't so far down the table. We were in that third or fourth, weren't we? Something I can't remember now. Straight after that, they'd have had a little bit of time off. But... Quite a lot of them have gone on to the sort of um, the the matches abroad, which are technically friendlies, but they're not really that friendly. When you've got Arsenal against Chelsea, they're feeling each other's sort of gauging each other's depth and ability, and seeing what they can get away with with regards to a foul here and there. So as a physio, you're, you're and also looking, players trying to prove themselves, yeah, and prove themselves exactly. And then they went into the World Cup. They weren't getting much time off. That's an awful lot of matches, especially if you've been playing in the Champions League, the FA Cup and, and things like that. Take the matches way back um, when the, um, so the time I was talking about in the 60s, 70s or whatever, that it was a more vigorous, brutal game. But the level of fitness and what was expected of a player was just not the same. And the... Uh, the amount of damage that they do, these guys are extremely fast, strong, fit, healthy athletes, and they're playing, they're playing, they're playing. You you have to slow it down at some point to give them some time off, and they don't get time off if they're at the, the top level. Um, you know, somebody like, like Pele, rest in peace, who was in, you know, everybody will accept him, George Best, and you know, brilliant players that had to play in a hard level game but if that viciousness that was uh, in that game was around today on top of the amount of physical 
demand that uh, is expected from from Premiership players and the like, um, it, it would be impossible. So, in some ways, it's changed from being brutal to being more sort of scientific. No football team at a high level worth its salt does not have a handful of fitness trainers, a handful of uh, fitness coaches, uh, psychology coaches, um, coaches in different ways that you, you know yourself. The medical system is obviously much more advanced, but at the same time, you know, there's only so much a human body can take and be and heal, and it has to heal at a certain rate as well. Uh, and the demands on it are going to be a lot more for a footballer or a rugby player or whatever. So I think, yeah, some, to some extent, people uh, players are playing a lot more matches, and there could be a good um, a good argument for it to be reduced a little bit. My take on that, though, um, if I have to play devil's advocate to the whole movement behind reducing the number of games, or at least changing the schedule, this is another argument, changing the schedule to allow more rest between games, which seems very difficult where they're trying to comp- mm. you know, throw in all these tournaments and competitions and World Cup changes, all these things into one season. Chelsea have so many players. Exactly, I was thinking. The, like the, the managers decide because they want to play with the players that are always in form. They choose to overplay the best players. Yeah. So I think yeah. And the other, thing, but it's not always just that they're because they're in good form. Is that it's again the thing with Chelsea at the moment? He's having a problem trying to figure out how to play his players. Once he's found the formula that works, that the other teams haven't got used to yet. He'll stick he's gonna, to it. He'll stick to it as much as he can and play those players in those positions as much as he can, which is going to lead to injuries. Um, the problem is, is he's, he's up against the demands of um, uh, the amount of games, how often, how much they're playing, where they're playing. Oh, don't forget, these Champions League matches... Uh, Involve people travelling all all over the world, uh, all over the Europe, and things like that, or even friendlies now all over the world. Okay, they get a little bit of rest in between, but they're usually having to train the next day or whatever, and and whatever. So they are picking up injuries. There is quite yeah. a lot. Of, so that, yeah, there's a for and against. Well, some people are pay, paying a lot of money for these matches, so yeah, they should expect to be able to go and see them as much as they can. Yeah. Um, so there is a for and, for and against. I, I do think they, they do play an awful lot of matches, but there is a lot of teams with the depth to be able to manage that. It's up to the manager how he and how he deals with that. On the other side of it, there are some of the other teams that don't have that depth, and once they get the injuries, it's really a problem for them um, to be able to field the team that they want. And that's a good argument because yeah. not all teams have the depth. Yeah. Um, Chelsea's got, like I said, the, the equivalent of the GDP of Ghana playing in the middle. They can't seem to pass a ball to each other, granted, but there's hundreds of them. The team bus is now triple-decker or at yeah. least four airplane planes long. <laughs> and they have um, dozens of players on loan, yeah. top players top on players. loan. Yeah. And they've got Just it. Just in case. But Brentford hasn't. Yeah. Brighton hasn't. The, I, do you see a world where... The they manage to control the injuries that the players face in because because they're investing more into fitness coaches and physios and sports scientists and trying to throw science at this understanding how much players should train how many sprints they should do in training at what speed how much how much distance should they cover in games when should they get rest but it seems like with all that players it's just so unpredictable it doesn't look like it does it I mean. We've got these players with everything that you're saying. I kind of liken it to, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm not I'm not a football pundit. Please don't think I am. I'm a physio, but just happen to like football. I'm talking to an ex-football player. Um, I liken it to like a motorway, and they put an extra lane in mm. to... Sort of take up the cars and and everything, but in a very short time amount of time, it's just as busy as it always was. It's equally the same with football. They put in all these different things to make them fitter, stronger, healthier, but the game improves at the same rate. And so you know the human body is still going to get injured at, a, at pretty much the same rate, maybe for different reasons. 
I wonder if that's what uh, if if that's what's causing it because certainly injuries don't seem to be any different. Maybe because of the media, how much it puts on it, how much it talks about them, you know. But no one is immune. The best players, the strongest players, the fittest players. It just it catches everyone by surprise. Oh yeah, for sure. Like we comes it brings back to what we were saying about the little things that people don't see off the ball. Uh, don't I don't know if I, I, I mentioned it maybe in the last pod podcast, but. One of the, when Terry Venables was the manager, his assistant manager was a guy called Terry Fennick. And Terry Fennick, if anybody remembers the '86 World Cup, and I'm still old enough to remember that, was that, where that's Maradona's World Cup. Maradona, that exactly that World Cup, that match when Maradona did the hand of God thing. Just after that, he did a a, a bit where he a beautiful goal where he ran from basically his box or his round the whole length of the pitch and he popped the ball round somebody in what they call a nutmeg where he passed it one side and ran round the other side took the ball and scored a goal that guy was a guy called Terry Fennick lovely chap um he actually ended up working in uh in the Caribbean as a as a manager in some one of the Caribbean teams but he uh really nice chap very strong player uh, known for being a very strong player, even to the day when I was working in in football, which was uh, sort of ninety nine, he was still couldn't walk into a pub with, without somebody reminding him of what happened in nineteen eighty six with the ball with Maradona. But he was telling me that he went to play, and Bobby Robson was the manager, and said, "Will you stop Maradona for God's sake? Take him out or something." So Fennec ran up, was standing there, and they were standing waiting for a throw-in, and he smashed his elbow into Maradona's ch- chest. Now that's not anything anybody ever sees on the TV. <laughs> so Fennec said Maradona was so strong and fit that his arm just went dead. He said, for the rest of the match, I couldn't move my arm, and Maradona just laughed at him, and more or less said, you know, is that all you've got? Um, and Fennec couldn't move. Now, if you can imagine, that's still that's still happening. All, it, like yeah. you said, people grabbing you here or punching yeah. you there or sticking in. And so those injuries are still there. They're the things that take you out of a game. And then coming back from it too early and trying to favour a leg in a particular way or a movement in a particular way and then pulling a hamstring or, like I said, being played out of position, that's not really going to make up for um, uh, major, major differences in the, in, in how you're you're being trained. Um, I saw in one of the podcasts you had a podiatrist on and I was, I was only listening to a bit of it, but I know that... I'll give you an example of how training differently or being played out of position can affect you. When I was working, I had my sports energy, injury clinic, energy, injury clinic. Uh, we had a, a guy come in and he uh, um, was complaining about, uh, no, actually it was a course I was on. I'm telling a lie there. It was a course I was on and someone was explaining to me. This guy had come in and he developed these pains in his leg from running now what had happened was he used to run 10 miles training for a mar- marathon from a to b but then he started he moved house and he moved to b so he travel he'd do the 10 mile run but from b to a and he started developing a problem in his ankle and his, uh, his uh around his shins what happened was that they went and looked at the route and basically the route he was running, when it was from A to B, it was like the road was like a bit of a camber in that direction. But coming back, it would be in that direction. It completely changed his gait pattern and he developed shin splints and then a stress fracture as a result of it. That's how it can be like if you're being played out of position and you're suddenly expected to favour your right foot or your left foot in a different way. It yeah, might now even just you, be now you're cutting more on your left side than you were exactly, used to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that would develop. Now, any amount, unless you're going to train into that, that's great. But they're not getting being trained into that, being trained in for their fitness or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so that, so I don't see it's ever really going to change. No, I think it's going to. So I think the demands are just going to go up. Probably. Um, because the game, will, it seems like the, it's going on a trend of the intensity keeps getting yeah. higher. Um, although the game is getting cleaner, 
um, because of VAR and right, all these yeah, things. A bit more time to rest in a match. Yes, um, but they say the distances the players cover is is growing every year, and the number of sprints and the speed and all these different um, metrics are keep gr- going and getting higher and mm-hmm. higher. And as a result, the players are just unable to uh, withstand um, the. The, the expectation of performing every single game. Think of VAR now. It's like a double-edged sword. That In the World Cup, they were playing about 15 minutes extra every match. Yeah. But that's 15 minutes of running around and sweating that they weren't playing before. That's a lot. That's, no, it's, and the demand it's, on the it's, players... It's a third of a, a half. Yeah. You know? and, and to keep running and expect somebody to run at that pace... And that's just as many. How many fouls can happen in a fifteen-minute period? You look at the nice little, nice little box. That fouls are the ones that they actually got given a foul for, not for the amount of times they got kicked after later. Those kicks and digs are still happening at the same rate for that fifteen minutes. In fact, I would say they're probably happening more because in the later fifteen minutes they're more tired. So the chance of somebody being hacked down because somebody can't keep up with them is is much greater. And yeah. as, as a therapist, yeah. you're going to have to deal with that. And even if you don't get kicked down, it's the, the fatigue, right? Yeah. When you're fatigued and then you try and push and sprint and cut, that's when you also make decisions yeah. that you probably shouldn't be making. Um, I want to move away a little bit from football, but if we're looking at the uh, the school teacher who plays uh, football in the park, gets injured, um, you wanted to talk a bit about your approach um, to really assessing someone, treating someone, rehabbing someone so that they can get back to their status quo. Yeah. So tell me. Well, it's, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here because I'm not. Any any therapist, doesn't matter, osteopath, chiropractor, sports therapist, physiotherapist, um, massage therapist, they go through a lot of studying and learning and and learning how to identify problems and it comes down to the assessment somebody will come in you'll carry out a subjective assessment you will ask them questions um, and then you will try and treat them you will do an objective assessment where you will look at them and try and decide what the problem is once upon a time it would be very nice to turn around it wasn't very nice it was the way it was done was you would have a pathology that would uh, describe a problem like tennis elbow or an ankle sprain. Let's take an ankle sprain. We've spoken about it before, but an ankle sprain is quite a, a, a common sort of injury. Um, where I didn't really, it's not really differed. I think everybody was probably doing it. It was just that I, I've tried to make it for myself. When I did my master's, I was on a, um, a workshop and somebody was just talking about sort of how to to address things, and I kind of built it up a little bit, and for myself and um, and my students, just to make things clearer. Because, say, for example, somebody comes in with a a tennis elbow, or somebody comes in with a neck pain or a knee pain. You, you, it's very easy to sort of give this test and that test. Um, I'm just trying to think of probably the best best description, best one to try and be a good example for this. And I always fall back on the ankle because it's it's easier. But say, for example, somebody comes in with a sprained ankle. They've gone over on their ankle in a football match, just saying they're running in the, in, in the park. Um, they've sprained their ankle. Now, the obvious thing is to say it's an ankle sprain, the ligament is torn, it will act like that. There will be like edema and swelling and bruising. And obviously, it's pretty obvious that you, you know, they've strained the ligaments um, and you're going to treat accordingly. And that treatment will be like you would do the initial sort of first aid sort of thing, try and get the the inflammation down. And then you will move on to the sort of rehab stage once you've you've cleared that up uh, and you know that the, the joint is stable. Uh, and you'll go on to the rehab stage where you will then try and get the... Uh, the patient to be able to return to sport, strengthen the the offending ankle, get the the proprioception or the body awareness over the ankle to work because you don't want somebody going into football or running again on uneven surfaces. If they can't control that that movement, it could take them out again. So now that's that's not changing at all. But sometimes, especially if it's gone down the line a little way, or even if it's not, even in the early stages, you should really be looking at what we do in a course for an NAT is uh, the sort of structure, or I call it the SC, uh, uh, um, 
SCMC, which is the structure. What what structure structure is causing the problem? You know, why is it being caused? So that's the structure, the cause of the structure, the mechanism of injury, and any contributing factors. And sometimes what happens is, is people will look at it more like contributing factors first. Now, contributing factor could be somebody that's come in with a scoliosis, you know, a, a curvature of the spine or one leg shorter than the other. Um, and they'll turn around and say, oh, yeah, you've got this and you've got that. And the patient will go, oh, yeah, I've got a scoliosis. And they seem quite proud of it, you know, and, uh, well, I've got this, I've got that. But the fact is, is they've had that scoliosis all their life. That isn't really the cause of something that happened three weeks ago when you twisted your ankle and then it carried on. It's a contributing factor. It may be involved in it. But what else is involved in it? What's really doing it? And that's, that's my kind of approach. It's not... I'm not trying to teach some you know, granny to suck eggs. Or no, of course. Expression. Yeah, yeah, but but but, but, you, but you try like it's important for you to find the root cause. Yeah, I'm of trying to the differentiate end. which things because invariably it's not one. Before we come back to the ankle, this guy's come in. He's got a twisted ankle. Okay, we know the ligaments lightly, so I look at it and say, okay, there's a, a joint aspect there. The ligament, the joint itself might be damaged. There may be a chip in the bone. I've got to look at it. Why is it causing it? The cause of it. Um, is there any sort of disc problem? Well, no, because there's no discs in the ankle. Um, osteogenic, yes, there is a, a, a bony element. There could be a chip in it. It could be an os trigonum. Is there any neural damage? When I say neural damage, I don't mean as in neurology like that. I do mean it like neurogenic, as in the nerves in the area are not working optimally or they're actually damaging and causing pain. Is there an effective component, a psychosocial component? Now, I'm not a psych psychologist and I never will be. I've not got the social skills to be a psychologist. But I can realise that People have come in and said, oh, yeah, and I hear it in my clinic all the time. People start talking to each other. You've got one of those. I had one of those. You've got this. My family, I've got a cousin who had this and told me you've got to do that, have this test. And the guy, by the time he's got into the, the clinic, he wants a CT, he wants this, he wants that, all from what he's heard from outside. Before he just thought he had a sprained ankle. Now he just thinks he's, no, he's actually going to get married to royalty or something like that with uh, what's going on. So he's... There's all these different elements and they impinge. Why are they impinging? You know, why is the ligament acting the way it is? Why is the muscle acting the way it is? Why is the tendon acting the way it is? Has it been strained? Is it in a um, a particular pain mechanism mode? And there's different pain mechanism modes. You can talk about like a inflammatory nociceptive, which is the irritation of the, the nociceptors inside the um, the soft tissue. It could be an inflammatory, it could be an ischemic component, it could be a mechanical component do you think causing that, the pain. But do you think that physios or therapists out there or even doctors are afraid to kind of open that can of worms to try and figure out what are the contributing factors to this specific pain symptom? Because, well, it, because it could be, like they could be... Um, now, putting this challenge on themselves that they might not find an answer for. In, no, because in fact, what they're doing is that they're, if you go down it, contribute, you say contributing factors, which can be a bit misleading, because then they will turn around, you could say, okay, you've got a particular pain mechanism working. Like I said, it could be neural, it could be something else. There could be something that could be contributing, but that's at the bottom of the path. Often doctors will turn around and say, you've got a pathology, like a scoliosis, or you've got this, or you've got that. And they are putting themselves in that position that they really can't help. Because you can't. There aren't certain ways, and if you get it early enough, with um, Schroth techniques and things like that, you can fix a scoliosis. But if I walked in with a, a bad back, and somebody had, says to me, you've got a scoliosis, well, yeah, I know, I've had it for about 30 years. I'm not going to change it. So don't tell me about it. I didn't have pain three weeks ago. I've got a pain now. What happened that caused that pain? What structures are now playing up? Is it a disc? If I'm talking about a back, for example. Is it a disc? Is it the, the joints? Is it the, the, um, uh, the neural tissue around it? If I look at that, I can then adjust my treatments accordingly. So I'll come back, to, leave the ankle, we'll come back to the back. I go in, 
I've got a scoliosis. I'm a very slim, delf-like human being. I shouldn't have any problems at all. But obviously I've got a lot of problems and well, at the end of them, I've got hundreds of them. And obviously those contributing factors may affect me having a bad back. But what flared up, what started causing me the pain... Today. Now, today or two days ago, was it muscle tissue? Was it that I bent forward and I didn't do it properly and I started off an inflammatory process around the uh, the facet joints where the neural tissue comes out and um, the muscles went into spasm as a result? Okay, now I've just given you three there. There's a joint aspect, my facet joints, because I could have moved and strained a ligament. Um, I could have set off the neural tissue because the uh, inflammation that's caused by that is... Uh, is irritating the, the nerve roots and the nerves as they come out of the spine. That's causing muscle spasms, and that could be causing trigger points. That is going to cause me to act in a particular way. It could have an effective mechanism, and so I need to sort of uh, give them enough information so people understand. But I can, as a therapist, now I'm lucky, as I've said this before, I'm a physiotherapist, so I'm pretty much allowed, like chiropractors or osteopaths, to to deal in deal with everything a massage therapist may not be allowed to do things like manipulating joints or things like that according to their state legislature legislature you say that word um or they're just not qualified to do it um but i can i can address looking at the joint i can do things like trying to stabilize the joint with exercise or mobilize the joint where it's not moving there was a good um course i went on which was muscle imbalance but the the teacher himself kind of said, well, the thing to look at is that you want to mobilise the restriction and stabilise the give. So there'll be certain areas that are over-mobile and I want to stabilise those with exercise. But there may be an area that isn't so mobile that's causing problems because the muscles will act or the nerves will act accordingly. So I might want to re release those with manipulation. Now I'm talking joints. Then coming to the muscle tissue... Same sort of thing. There could be trigger points formed or tightness in the, the muscle tissue. So I want to release that. So I may use uh, dry needling techniques or trigger point techniques of various types. They're all very, very useful. Um, there may be a neural element. Uh, there's inflammation around the facet joint. You've got a nerve coming out of the facet joint that's irritating the neural tissue. What do I want to do with the nerve? Well, there's two things. I like to calm it down. So that might use electrotherapy like TENS or interferential or something like that, or massage, because that can have an effect as well, as it does on on um, trigger points. And then I can try and mobilise the nerve. The nerve is, is, how can I say it? It's, it's like a big pipe, like a tube, like a hose in a garden that's got stuck between two rocks or something like that. The... The sort of juice inside the nerve that's flying up and down there. Is that a nerve impingement? It it could be. That's how it would be called. It could be called, but it's usually the fact that you've got a nerve that's trying to move between a, an interface, whether it be muscle or or joint. That the muscle might be tight because of trigger points or because it's guarding. That doesn't let the nerve move as as well as it can. So the nerve isn't as mobile. It's not able to slide and glide. The axoplasm inside isn't allowed to flow, which stops the um, the nerve working optimally. That makes the nerve uh, produce iron channels at different points along its length at the wrong place that make it very sort of sensitive, and that generates pain, which feeds into the muscle tissue, which is now going to try and guard even more and maybe de develop trigger points or, or tight muscle tissue, which could stop the joints around it moving, and you've got to look at all of those. Which is the thing that's causing it? Which one can I treat when? Which will be most effective? Sometimes you'll do, say, a trigger point release, but really you want to be moving the joint, but you will come to that once you can move the tissues, such as the, the muscle and the nerves. And another time it may be the joint. Okay, I can do a manipulation on the joint and it will be a lot more... Um, the, the patient will feel a bit happier about moving. You've shown them that, look, I've just really moved it, made a big, loud click... Um, effectively they're going to think oh it wasn't so bad I can move I can do these sort of things I can suffer that's where the biopsychosocial meet very nicely although sometimes people seem to go down the one route or the other um, and then you can sort of say right now I'm going to give you a, 
Uh, I'm going to um, maybe dry needle your your trigger points and they'll feel that moving able to move a little bit more. And now I'm going to give you exercises um, to, to take home and use either some of the, uh, the self-help devices like the uh, back knob or the jack knob and all those things that are really, really good. So, but so is that also a part of your approach of like um, providing some homework assignments? Yeah, definitely, most definitely, yeah. And do you feel that most um, participate in these requirements they to do. take care of themselves? I do when it works. But I'm assuming the most trick is things catching them, and get them, showing them that something works. Exactly, because I was going to say usually things take time. Things take time to work. So, say for example, you've got a back patient. And he comes in and he's scared and he's worried and he doesn't want to move. Now, the psychosocial, there has been a move quite a lot to psychosocial. And, oh, we'll just show them exercise. We're just going to show them to do this and that because all the other things don't work, which I don't particularly agree with. I think everything's useful. Mm -hmm. So in my experience, and I'm not working with highly trained athletes now, Showing somebody exercises, they're not going to do them. And more often, they not, more often than not, they do not do them. But if, for example, you there's an element of placebo in this as well. Um, if you say you can manipulate a spine and you get this really lovely crack and then the patient starts to feel that he can move a little bit more or somebody comes in and gets uh, the, to a massage therapist it happens all the time. They massage and they massage over all their body, and basically, it's, it's hurt them a little bit. Afterwards, they're, they're moving around a lot, a, li a lot more, and a lot yeah, more. People freely. feel great. They feel great for doing it. Energized, almost. Yeah. yeah. So now they've they've shown that with these techniques, you are now able to do more than you were able to do half an hour ago before you walked into the clinic, and you now give them something that mimics that or acts like that um i think it's the back knob or the big s shaped yep. thing yeah i love that thing i love it because i'm as stiff as a board and when i want to get to a particular spot i can reach just about everywhere yeah even. me too once yeah. a year i have a, a spot right yeah, in the middle um, of my back that i it's the only thing i yeah, can you use. get in there and you oh, yeah. there it is and then you just give it a pull or it's or a tennis ball by the way yeah. on, on the wall yeah, yeah. A tennis ball but those those tools are so so useful because then you so show somebody how to use it that you show you show somebody um how to use that to help them mobilize a joint or hit a trigger point, then they'll do it. They will use it. And then they'll be willing to either pay the money to buy the thing even and, and whatever. And they'll come back to you because you they trust you to give them the right advice and not try and rip them off or you know, you'll only get treat you'll only get better if you treat uh, get treatment from me. And you can use those things in different ways. The the um the back knobber is so good because you can use it almost like a mulligan belt to help you do joint movements if somebody shows you how to do it. You can use it to um, uh, uh, to do the trigger point treatments. And then you can treat them flossing movements, which are very easily done, like slump-type movements at home to move the neural tissue. And that can really clear their back up. And once they learn that, they're empowered. And that then feeds into the effective side of it, the, the psychosocial side of it. But you're also, aren't you like still left here with a delta? Because for most things, don't you want the patient to still apply some movement, some strength development, some range of motion development, some stretching? And if they That will be part of your home regime and also your, your clinic regime. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, but, but why don't people like to do um, the... I've got to say, listen, I'm, I, I look at myself, I'm probably the most, if you want to say, average Joe with these sort of things. I hate sport, <laughs> mainly because I'm so injured in different places. It hurts. I can't be bothered with it. People keep saying, you need to do sport. Like, no, I don't need to do sport. Whenever I'm at work, you should do sport. If I do sport, I can't move for three weeks afterwards. I feel yeah. rotten. But do you do anything on a daily basis? Yeah, to... because when I have a certain thing that's causing me a real problem, I've got, I don't know it's the right place. So I've got fractured ankle in three places in a motorcycle accident. I ripped my, I tore my, my Achilles tendon, complete tore it, ruptured it. I've got um, uh, a tear in my left 
meniscus medial meniscus my left knee a tear in my Ooh, right nice meniscus. ones i've got my ace an acl tear complete rupture in my left knee i had a massive unfixed unfixed a massive operation that they cut me from here to here um i've been chest to belly yeah which is why i've got this big hernia that everyone thinks is just me being fat which i am anyway but um i've got three slip discs or sorry uh, prolapse discs Every so often, one of those things is going to wake up and play play me up. And so I do certain things because I'm a physio and I know what to do. And, okay, I'll take a couple of tablets to calm it down. I'll make sure I move in a particular way, do the exercises I, I have to do because I might have let that bit get a bit weak. And then eventually it will calm down and I'll move on. And sometimes I will do certain exercises to maintain my uh, stability or my uh, mobility, whichever part I need to do, and I'll do it accordingly. And that's I, something I found out that works for me. I'm not, people can see that I'm not the fittest looking individual on the planet. I'm far from it. But I manage. I work 14 hour days, home visits, picking patients up, doing things, fairly physical work. I'm in my 60s. I manage. That's it's, it's something you can teach your your patients to do and they will do it. But sometimes when you say, you've got to do this exercise and you're drumming it into them, they kind of go... People don't like it. Yeah, they yeah. go against Pushes them it. away. If you can give them the little tools here and there, then you can often it's get like, something out of it. Teach a man to fish. Yeah. When we, Do you remember when you were first introduced to uh, the concept of trigger points? Yeah, actually, right out... Right, during university and so very early in your yeah, but it wasn't a popular thing and at the time finding anybody that would talk or teach about it was almost impossible i actually i actually became self-taught and then gradually through being self-taught found more and more things and managed to find the courses to go on but in the very beginning certainly in physiotherapy it was pretty much frowned on but then i gradually found it more and more and more more through like the osteopathic links and now and then I started doing dry needling techniques nearly 30 years ago, and there was a doctor that was teaching that. And I find it really useful. To young therapists out there that maybe have not come across it or have not invested enough time self-teaching themselves or learning elsewhere, um, what would you say um, about trigger points? Yeah, learn it. Yeah, definitely learn it. It's... Um, like I said, it was one of those things that I, I remember there was one teacher that was supposedly meant to know a little bit about it and I asked him about it and he said, no, I know a little bit about it, but nothing to teach you. And gradually I picked out and picked out. I find it a very, very useful technique. Um, I Once I learned the dry needling of it, I very rarely used uh, uh, electrotherapy. I tend to, if I use it, electrotherapy, it might be to calm down some inflamed joints. But say for back problems, I more often than not will use dry needling techniques. Yeah, I was lucky enough back. to uh, have you stick some needles yeah. in me. <laughs> I don't know if it's lucky, but uh, but it, it works. And yep. it works if you know what you're doing. And uh, certainly in the clinic I'm working in now, there's a lot of younger physios uh, have just left university and trigger point dry needling or trigger point treatment has become a lot more acceptable so people go on with it. There's still people that will poo-poo it because some of the, um, the research in it needs to be better but there's there needs to be better in everything but uh it's definitely yeah definitely i i would highly recommend it and dry needling when did that come in for me yeah that year after i left university so, I'd also, start, so also early on i started my quest in the, i'd trying to figure out about trigger points and things like that um probably for all the wrong reasons i i wanted to I stick the needles in people. I don't know. Um, I did the course, and I realized I mean, it's obviously it's something really... compelling and interesting about yeah. it. And the tie to—do you think the um, the tie to Eastern acupuncture has an effect? Well, I had the absolute privilege of working with a, um, an osteopath who was, for some reason, working in the National Health Service. Something weird happened. He someone was working in my department. He was an osteopath and an acupuncturist. So when I learned a dry needling and we got on very well, he took me under his wing and started showing me these little uh, uh, little tricks with some of them. Then I did some of the Eastern acupuncture, but but not not to be an acupuncturist because I don't want to work in that yeah. that field. But um, but I learned it and I found it very very useful. And then I started teaching it as well. But um, but would you would you someone who's investing the time to learn dry needling? 
um, would you recommend they also not not to get certified, but at least to understand yeah, some definitely. elements of um, the Eastern... Eastern, Eastern. Yeah, definitely. I that's what I did. I once I learned as I was learning, they would say, "Oh, this is a on the meridians, or this works." And I'm trying not to hit this microphone, which I keep doing. Um, this uh, works in a particular way on the meridians, so you need to be aware of that. And if, and so I got books on the Eastern approach but i didn't learn all the pulses and the things like that how it works i don't poo poo them in any way um i just didn't learn them but i, but I knew about them i understood they were there um and we've got time but there's a, a very good picture and there was a guy called jeremy lewis who once taught a did a workshop and he had a picture of a guy lying on the bed and he and it was a picture of this guy pushing on a somebody's back, and then he said, "What are they doing?" So one of the sort of physiotherapists that were a sort of Maitland trained was saying, "Oh, he's doing a Maitland unilateral uh, uh, anterior posterior to anterior uh, mobilization." And then he said, "Yeah, but if you're in America, that would be somebody releasing a trigger point in the erector spinae." And he said, and "If you're in China, that would be somebody treating the with shiatsu the the bladder meridian." So because it changes, but there's a lot of different things. And then the junk to that, when I did my masters, and he was also my electro teacher and uh, um, during my BSc, a guy called Tim Watson, and he put this picture up of a. He said, "This is a tissue battery." There's such a thing as a tissue battery. And you would say that if you hurt yourself, how does the body know to heal? And everyone would say, oh, you get these chemicals released from the... Yeah, but how? How does it know to release them? It was like, you know, how did the Big Bang happen or not happen? <laughs> and it was like, basically, if you get a cut in your arm, how does the body know to heal? Yes, there is a cascade of events, but how? It's basically a plus and a minus. They're not meeting. So you get a break in the electrical current and the body then knows to try and produce the chemicals to heal that. And they've actually developed a tissue battery. And when you look at it, it's very similar to the meridians that are in, um, in Eastern in Chinese medicine. So, yeah, you should go and learn about it because there's a lot to be said from it. They have their other looks, way, other ways of approaching it and looking at it which is nothing wrong with that, um, but it's worth knowing about it. And if you're going to do, especially if you're going to be doing trigger points and needling, because some of them are meridian points, and you might be sticking a needle in a place you really don't want to be sticking it in a person that really doesn't need it there, like a pregnant woman or something like that. So yes, you should go and learn. I, I then went on and did a course with another guy who then did um, a good few weeks of teaching us, but just teaching us some of the very basic things to look out for so that when we were doing our trigger point treatment. Um, so yes, I, I would suggest it, or if you can do both, even better. But sometimes it gets a bit confusing when you're trying to sort of merge the two um, um, two uh, schools of thought together. It's, it's it can be a bit of a problem, but uh, certainly you need to be open to it. I, I like to think I am open to it, and then I certainly will use it. Yeah, Paul Townley, um, a pleasure to have you here again, um, as mentioned officially the first guest to appear twice on the Treatment Room Secrets podcast um, and hopefully not the last time. So I know we have a lot to speak about. Hopefully Chelsea still have a large portion of the season to play. So hopefully they do better and we can talk about them on, in a positive light. Um, and of Graham Potter, hopefully uh, he does well as well. Um, and I personally think Hermione might do better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, everyone, um, you know where to find Paul Townley, his courses, the online content. Um, thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time thanks very much